Hello, my name is Nick Spasic, and you're listening to From and Inspired by, a podcast about soundtracks and the people who make them. On this episode, we speak with author Andrew Cartmel about his Vinyl Detective series of novels. series of vinyl detective novels became an instant favorite of mine after discovering the first installment at Lawrence's Raven Bookstore at the end of 2018. Since then, I've gone on to devour all four volumes in this series of novels about a London-dwelling music aficionado whose business cards state that he can find any record for anyone, for a fee. They're utterly charming books, and fans of records, cats, and coffee, such as myself, will find themselves racing through each installment, each of which is filled with witty banter and fast-paced action. We spoke with Cartmel from his home in London about the books and last year's soundtrack release for them. Thank you so much for taking time out of your evening, my afternoon, to do this. I, I do greatly appreciate you dealing with international time zones. Oh, well, it's, I have no idea. Where are you based, Nick? I am in Lawrence, Kansas. Okay, so that's what, about six hours difference? Yes. Yeah, so not too bad for either of us. That's great. <laughs> yes, we've, we've, done a, we've done a couple of interviews with uh, various folks, and I've uh, learned to uh, adapt to Greenwich Mean Time. <laughs> Thank you. I love the name of your podcast. It's the perfect name for uh, a podcast about soundtracks. I love it. It took me a while to come up with it, and then I realized that, and I was like, oh, well, that's so simple. I like the fact that, speaking of names for things, The Vinyl Detective, I first saw written in dead wax at um, a bookstore here in Lawrence called The Raven uh, that specializes uh, in mystery fiction. And one of the, they have a shelf where it is first volumes, where it is uh, books that are the start of a series. And I was browsing and I was like, The Vinyl Detective? Oh, it's a detective novel. Oh, 
he collects records. Oh, he finds records. Oh, he has cats. And just <laughs> bought it without having so much as flipped through it and um, immediately became a fan. That, that's fantastic. And I love the idea of a first volume shop. That's very smart. It sounds like a great bookshop, The Raven. Good name, too. Um, where did the idea for The Vinyl Detective uh, spring from? Well, I can tell you that. Um, I don't know if you know much about my background, but uh, to cut a long story short, a very good friend of mine is a fellow writer called Ben Aronovich. Mm. And Ben has got a best-selling series of novels called the rivers of london series which are uh the police procedurals with a supernatural element and ben is a massive success two million copies in print he's just going off on a book tour now but we were both uh writers in the in a foxhole together so to speak we neither of us could get arrested at one point in our careers <laughs> and then ben wrote this book and it was uh, a bestseller straight out of the gate i said to ben what's what's the trick and he said don't try and second guess the marketplace. Don't try and write a bestseller. Write about what you genuinely love. And I thought, well, what I genuinely love is collecting records and listening to my hi-fi. <laughs> <laughs> and I also love crime fiction. So I thought, well, why not? Let's, you know. And also, that first novel, as you say, is called Written in Dead Wax. And that phrase, you know, always kind of gives me a bit of a goosebumps because I think it's such an evocative phrase, written in dead wax. It's very suggestive of something slightly mysterious and slightly menacing. So, well, that's a great title for a novel. And as your listeners may know, it refers to the area of dead vinyl just around the label on a vinyl record in which there's often cryptic uh, numbers and letters and marks, which, if you know how to read them, provide a lot of fascinating information. So that really was an ideal thing for a place to put clues in my mystery novel. Now, when you wrote Written in Dead Wax, did you have any intention of this becoming a series? Yes, um, because, again, I was emulating my friend Ben, who was writing a series, and why wouldn't you? You know, I I, I love a good uh, a good se series character. Like the, just to go off on a tangent for a moment, there's a great American crime novel it's called John D. McDonald, little known now except for perhaps the movie of um, Cape Fear. And he had a series character called Travis McGee, and he's fantastic. I, I just love those books. And it's possible to, to do a series and maintain a really high standard and keep your readers happy. And that's sort of what I would love to do because it's what I love to read. I love to have that thing where you've got a favorite writer who's got a series going and every year a new book comes out and you can't wait. Now, the you briefly touched on it, but like the, the themes of all of the novels seem to be like cats, coffee, wine <laughs> records like uh, how does this reflect your interests in every respect except coffee i <laughs> i don't drink coffee because it jangles my nerves i can't even drink tea but i do drink hot chocolate which i've been told has lots of caffeine in it but somehow i can drink a, a fine cup of hot chocolate so i've actually had to um enlist the help of a coffee i've got a coffee advisor now because i felt that i was in the first book i did lots of research about you know kinds of coffee and what what this guy would be into and that slightly got marginalized in subsequent books so i thought well i need to i need to raise my game on the coffee side of things but the wine the cats the vinyl all that stuff is very much me uh, in terms of research 
like what does it require because i would imagine that the wide ranging do do the vinyl and musical interests of our narrator overlap with yours like i, I the the f- reading the first book like i i would go through and have done with subsequent volumes but like like track down the tracks that were mentioned oh. and like that godzilla th- like right off the bat, like that was one of the first ones mentioned in any of the books. And I was like, that's, this is a legitimately a great track. I'm so glad you did that. It's a really cool track, isn't it? So I would never name check something that, uh, that isn't, uh, you know, isn't something that I love. Although I would occasionally name check things that don't exist. Cause for the purpose <laughs> of the story, as you've discovered, I do invent some stuff. But yeah, I I love the idea that people might be assembling a playlist because it would be a playlist that I would be proud to pass on to them. Now, the the books have explored different genres like jazz and folk rock and big band like music of the Second World War. Um like you create like these very vivid depictions of very non-existent musicians. Like, where are you drawing from in in terms oh. of this? Do you do you have like a, a a genre that you want to focus on for each novel? Yeah, well, that seems to be the approach to take. And the thing is, if you're writing about looking for rare records, that has a certain degree of interest. But you're just after an object, right? As soon as you <laughs> involve the people who made the records, you suddenly are gifted with a cast of fascinating characters. And that's what you need in any kind of book <laughs> is characters who are preferably fascinating. The, um, the, the growing cast of characters is one of the, the things I was most interested in because it's, it's steadily grown uh, <laughs> with, with, with each novel. Like, I mean, you have the narrator, you have Tinkler, you have Nevada, you have Cleanhead slash Agatha. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, stinky uh, uh <laughs> and then uh make loud has sort of become like a recurring character like um it it just it seems like with each novel you're you're working to grow expand the the world do you ever worry about drawing too much focus from from like that nexus of the the narrator and i guess Nevada? i think that you've got a built-in protection mechanism against that because it's a first-person narrative, right? So you couldn't really lose the hero because no matter how many characters you draw and they're seen through his eyes and are presented to you with his opinions about them. So I think we're secure on that level. But I do love the fact, I mean, one of the things I felt very early on is that if this series lands, it'll be because, and people take it up, it's because they will love the characters. In a crime novel, a mystery novel particularly, you've got to have a, a good plot, good uh, driving plot with surprises, suspense, and action. But even more important that, than that is the characters that your reader hopefully will fall in love with because that is what will keep bringing them back because so they go, oh, I want to know what, you know, what Tinkler's up to. You know, what's, what kind of hell is Stinky going to create for our hero next time? You just uh, you sort of become seduced by these characters. I know that because that's the way I feel about series that I really enjoy reading. So at a very early stage, that is something that I set out to do and was hoping I would achieve. And the great thing with social media is that, I mean, like 20 years ago, I could have had the readership I have now, and I would have no idea what they're thinking, right? <laughs> Maybe I'd occasionally get a typed 
uh, physical letter. But these days, you just get loads of tweets and messages on Facebook from people saying, oh, you know, oh, uh, Agatha's my favorite character. Oh, God, when can you kill Stinky? And it's so gratifying <laughs> because it, it means that my sinister scheme is working out, Nick. I don't know. I always draw this comparison. I don't know if when you were a kid you ever read the Tintin books. Does that ring any bells? Those weren't quite so big here in the States, but I am very familiar with them. They're a European series about this boy detective. The the only relevance they have to our discussion is that they came in these nice sort of graphic novels. And when you open the graphic novels, the two pages inside that they call the end papers, immediately inside the cover, consisted of uh, a sort of section of wall with portraits of all the characters from the book hanging on it. And that it's I like to think of my characters like that hanging in a gallery that people can come in and uh, see every time that they they pick up a new book and great characters in comics like uh, an American example would be uh, Milton Caniff's strip Terry and the Pirates because that was the same thing it started out with the Terry who's the, the sort of kid who became involved in these adventures in the Far East and very rapidly they began to add and add all these eccentric, wonderful, interesting characters. There's the Dragon Lady. And uh, I think if you pick up a volume of Terry and the Pirates, you'll probably get uh, a similar kind of spread of uh, of the characters who are involved. And again, American Flag by Howard Chaikin, he very deliberately set out <laughs> to do that thing where he builds a world, adding characters, and that is what people draw people in, I think. So rather a long-winded answer to your question, but uh, I, I do love that aspect of the books. No, I think uh, like Stinky Stammer has quickly, uh, since I began reading the novels a couple of years ago, has quickly become my favorite character to hate. <laughs> I, I guess you read the first four, is that right, Nick? Yeah, yes. Up to, up to including Flipback. Because mm-hmm. the new one, which is called Low Action, which refers to how a guitar is tuned, uh, you can, you can, there's going to be more Eric Makeloud, there's going to be more Stinky, all your favorites will be in there, rest assured. Well, the, the, the interesting thing, uh, sort of about, like, you, you mentioned that, you know, occasionally of people, like, when are you going to kill Stinky? Like, he came very close and, and flip back, um, uh, like, it's, it, it seems, uh, as though, as the the characters have grown, you've also slowly moved the locale sort of steadily further afield from London. Well, uh, yes and no, because in the very first book, if you remember, there were side trips to uh, Nakamichi, I think, prefecture in Japan, uh, to Los Angeles, <laughs> and to Wales. So we did roam around quite a lot, even the first book. But um, yeah... London-centric, I wouldn't mind continuing to, to write lots of stories in London, but it is fun to, to take them out on location. So in that the last book, Flip Back, they all went to an imaginary island. I mean, that makes it sound terrible, but it's it's very closely based on Lindisfarne, which is a real island. I just didn't want to be limited by the physical facts of that place. A lot of people really love that island. I, I remember my friend Ben, who I mentioned, read the book and he just – he just said, said it had become very real in his mind. So it's that sort of world-building aspect is great fun too. But you always have to back it up with research. And for instance, on the, the most recent novel, the one that's in the pipeline to come out in May, uh, I had to write it under a very tight deadline. And I had intended to set it at quite a far-flung location 
but in England, but quite a long way from London. And I thought there just isn't time for this. So I said it outside London, but just outside London, around Epsom, so that I could go visit my buddy there and we could just visit all the locations <laughs> and I could do it on a day trip from where I live. So there are some practical considerations underlying where the books take place. The the fact that like many of the novels, most especially like Flipback, really take um, inspiration from real musical history. <laughs> like the, when I when I was reading the the the, the inside uh, of the dust sleeve on, on Flipback, I was like, oh my god, it's the KLF, right? Um, um, <laughs> and I was like, that's such a perfect thing. For, like like oh what if they didn't burn the money i was like i i mean i'm always in on these books when a new one comes out i'm just excited that there's a new adventure but like that one especially um that's that's sort of a like a very specific thing that people who know about it really know about it but i think it's not like n- known to the general music listening public well, the great thing about that is it's such an outrageous thing. People just think, oh, that could never happen, right? <laughs> but, and on the other hand, because I did base it on the KLF, I made sure that in the acknowledgments that I came out and said that, because I'd hate for anybody to think that I was trying to pass it off entirely as my own concept, because it's such an outrageous idea. I mean, it's extraordinary. And it seems like, I mean, there is no shortage of uh, outrageous behavior and uh, characters in the history of music from which to draw. Oh, and I, I, I do make stuff up from the whole cloth sometimes, but I do also draw inspiration. And for instance, some a few books down the line from now, I want to do one about soundtracks very appropriately, <laughs> about film music. And I don't want to give too much away, but it, it's, a, it, it's actually based on a real-life crime case that involved a soundtrack composer. I don't want to say any more. And I won't stick too close to the facts, but it, it is, that's sort of the, um, the spark plug for the, the story. That's sort of the inspiration for it. Oh, that makes my, my heart flutter and I, I, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> now, uh, s- speaking of uh, uh, real things, like um, it's, a, it's a rare thing for a book to have its own soundtrack. Uh, a, and you created one that came out, uh, was it September of last year? I've got to say, I'm so proud of that LP. I, I want to give credit where it's due. I'm, uh, I've done a lot of journalism writing about lps uh reviewing stuff on vinyl which i shamelessly did so i could get free records right i, mean, <laughs> I, who I would? do the same and thing in the, in the course of that um covetous uh, mission of mine i met a lot of the, the pr guys uh who handle the vinyl labels and there's a particularly nice guy called mike gething and i always you know these guys are giving me loads of records i always buy him coffee buy him a piece of cake and, and you know just sort of try and be uh, generous and sociable. So I get to know him quite well and get quite friendly with him. Well, Mike and I were having a coffee one day and he just said, why don't you do a vinyl detective LP? The idea had never crossed my mind. And he said, if you, you know, if you use public domain tracks, uh, it'll cost nothing in terms of licensing. And I can, one of my uh, sub labels could just manufacture it for you and it wouldn't cost you a dime. And so I, I love that concept. So that was the first – thank you, Mike. That was the first thing that happened. And the second thing that happened was I was having lunch with a friend of mine. And I was telling him about it. And he said, hell, 
why don't I write an original theme for that to go with these classic jazz tracks? And that friend was Joe Kramer, who's <laughs> a, a magnificent soundtrack composer. He, he did uh, movies like Jack Reacher and the Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, fantastic orchestral score. So like he's a, he's a serious Hollywood soundtrack composer. So that turned it from a kind of a jukebox soundtrack, so to speak, into a genuine, a real uh, movie soundtrack type soundtrack album. And, and, and like, there are so many great names. I mean, like the Miles Davis Quintet and Charles Mingus and Cannonball Adderley. Um, like, even I, who am a, a dilettante in the world of jazz, like, was very excited when I saw the track listing for this. Well, and, and- you are the perfect audience for that, because <laughs> what I wanted it to do was to turn people on who might never have heard a jazz record in their life and get them to go out, well... Back in the day, they would have gone out and bought the record. These days, they'd probably just download something, right? But whatever, whatever way that it gets them into the music and and spreads the word on the music, that makes me enormously happy. And and to that end, I wrote quite extensive liner notes. uh, Nick, do you still operate a turntable? There is is one. It's not quite within... reach of me right now but it's it it's within i could throw something at it <laughs> but no but that's that's great so you could actually buy the lp and play it in the manner that it's best presented because some people don't have a turntable so i just say oh look here's a list of the tracks you, you know just hunt them down online and listen to them on spotify or something it is currently actually winging its way uh to me um uh, I have it. It is on order right now. So that's. I, th- I really hope you like it. The thing is, it's a mix of people like Mingus, Miles Davis, these towering greats, and complete unknowns. And some of the unknowns, I think, I hope, will blow you away too. I just love spreading the word about these people. And the other thing was, as you will know well from my novels, I'm a real vinyl nut perfectionist, uh, and I don't suffer bad pressings lightly. And the thing is. This record, which was pressed in Holland um, by Vinyl Passion, they did a magnificent job of mastering. I can't tell you how pleased I am. It came out sounding fabulous. And uh, there's only, what it was, uh, I think, 500 copies pressed. So small runs, it's easy to maintain quality, right? right. So anybody out there who who's a vinyl nut and thinks they might like the music, they should grab a copy of it because it's an immaculate pressing. It sounds really, I mean, I, I was, couldn't believe how good it was. I just got really lucky on that. So let me know what you think both about the, uh, never mind the quality of the violence. Let me know what you think of the music, but it's a big bonus that it's such a beautiful pressing too. So I hear tell, um, that there are locked grooves on the record. <laughs> That's supposed to be a surprise. But the, the thing about that was, um, as you, you've read the second novel in the series, the run out groove, that's, that's a sort of trope from that. But they do exist. But I, I stuck those in specifically because uh, so that it would reference the, the book. Now, um, how do you purchase your records? Do you buy online? Do you have like a, a, a set uh, like route of shops that you, you go to? Mostly um, online these days. When I was writing the first few vinyl detective novels, I did what the character in that book does and he goes out and he systematically hunts the charity shops and what you guys would in the states would call thrift stores mm-hmm. i guess probably the nearest equivalent right like the salvation army and right. stuff and you can find extraordinary things though doing that but it takes so much time and these days i really just do not have the time to 
devote my life to, to hunting for records in that same way. I occasionally can't resist, and it's still good fun, but it's not the kind of um, daily routine that it once was. So these days, I would say mostly online. Uh, and also, I've reached the point, I've reached what I call peak vinyl, where I actually need to thin the record collection down now. So I, I don't want to be in the position where I do find 100 records to buy, really. <laughs> I'd rather just buy the occasional rather rare and choice item and just add that to my library. Um, I guess to, to wrap up, what has been your most recent uh, discovery that, that made you happy? Well, there's this fabulous jazz album from the early 1960s, which is almost completely unknown. It's called Katanga, which is, sounds strange. It started with a K, which is a place in Africa, and it's by Curtis Amy, uh, A-M-Y, who's a fabulous sax player, and Dupre Bolton, who's an almost completely unknown trumpeter. Anyway, these guys did this album for Pacific Jazz in the early 60s. And just to get get into the sort of um, uh, the sports statistics of it, the baseball statistics of it, so to speak, I had a British pressing of this album, which is great, and it's a fantastic piece of music, but it wasn't the original. The original was an American pressing from the West Coast, uh, on the, the Blue Pacific Jazz label. And I recently tracked that down in Germany. It's a very scarce, hard-to-find record. And I just, I got it, and it was just fabulous. You know, like those these occasional triumphs, beautiful music, and it's always good to hear it on the in the original version, because I always think that's closest to the artist's intention. So that uh, was my latest sort of joyous find, and also a really good hot tip for anybody who wants to go out there and check out a a wonderful but very little known jazz masterpiece. I will I, I hope folks will track that down. So um there is a new uh vinyl detective novel coming out, as you said, in May. Um uh where can folks find out more information about that? Well, uh the obvious sources like Amazon, but if they wanted to find me on Twitter or Facebook, I will certainly be staying across that and announcing that. Um, so I'd say Amazon or Titan Books, who are my publisher, is, is also a good place to uh, find out about all things Vinyl Detective. But yeah, please please come and uh, friend me and follow me on the the dreaded social media. I'm even on Instagram, although I'm just beginning to <laughs> dip my toe into that. So that's all very good. And I just wanted to add, from a soundtrack point of view, I was kind of hoping you'd ask me for my favorite soundtrack tracks of all time <laughs> because I, I know what they are, which is oh, unusual. Okay. Well, my, then I definitely, I would love to hear them like, because, um, I, I like knowing like the, the wide swathe of what you have inserted into the novels, uh, and, um, like having <laughs> Joe Kramer, perform the the theme for your novels yeah that was so fabulous have you interviewed joe no i haven't um i i was a big actually a big fan of his score for his the most recent film last year's the man who killed uh bigfoot. hitler and then the big, bigfoot yeah hitler and bigfoot so yeah it's a beautiful score like i mean it's it's like a big big budget hollywood score for uh, a small little known film no you must i'll hook you up with joe i'll send you his details he would love to come on he's, oh. he's a very amusing guy to talk to it's just fabulous that, that he has donated this track from my album <laughs> and for all the classic jazz that's on there 
the track that people most single out is, is the vinyl detective theme, which Joe wrote, and he wrote it in the style of like a classic TV kind of noirish detective theme. Uh, what would I compare it to? Something like uh, perhaps The Saint, which was a British mm. series, or maybe Peter Gunn, although it doesn't have that driving kind of Peter Gunn beat, but you get the idea of the kind of show that it, it's, uh, the, the kind of world that, that it's operating in. Fantastic, yeah. So, and the other thing, why it's so great that you got in touch to interview me is, although I am a jazz nut, and that's kind of my primary music, I'm following closely on that soundtracks, sound film music is the other thing that I'm really into. I think that Godzilla track, I, I like. I keep coming back to it, but I was just like, oh, that is that just it hits my uh it, it hits my sweet spot in terms of just like it's obscure but it's also right. like oh it's godzilla like everybody likes godzilla but like those scores like there's so many of them um and they're all so like i was listening to godzilla versus megalon uh the other day which is like has this very interesting sort of like sci-fi meets exotica exactly meets, uh exactly know, like meets big, you know, kaiju movie. So, like, what, like, when you go for soundtracks, what are you listening to? Well, I've got very broad tastes. I mean, the way where the way this all began for me, the first piece of music I think that I was ever really aware of in terms of who wrote it was this this score for the TV show Mission Impossible by Lalo Schifrin. Like that music was so incredible. I, you know, I thought, okay, who's this by? Music by Lalo Schifrin, and I. As a kid, I had this wonderful Lalo Schifrin album. It wasn't Mission Impossible, it was Mannix, which is this great big band album. But I suppose it grew out of that. I mean, the, the three albums I remember as a really little kid were Mannix by Schifrin, John Barry's score for Thunderball, and Burt Bacharach's score for that, that rogue James Bond movie, the first version of Casino Royale. Mm. And those are all in their own way, very interesting albums. And, and Casino Royale is like a towering masterpiece. It's got Dusty Springfield singing The Look of Love on it for a start. <laughs> <laughs> what more could you ask of a record? I love the fact that like my favorite Burt Bacharach uh, piece of trivia, like uh, you know, like pub quiz sort of thing, is that Burt Bacharach wrote the theme for The Blob. Yeah. It, it, an exploitation song. I don't know if it was... Um, uh, I'm not sure who wrote the... Hal David wrote the lyrics, but it might have been. <laughs> but it, <laughs> fabulous no is like that's one of those songs where it's just like oh it's so schlocky but it's so catchy um uh, his early stuff just to go for a back rack tangent oh, yeah. is is amazing i mean magic moments which was this white bread perry como <laughs> track but it's a wonderful song it's just beautifully engineered i think i th i do think back rack is one of the greatest film composers of all time or just one of the greatest composers of all time i know ennio morricone is nuts about him which is very interesting and very telling. Yeah, there was something I had read. Uh, there was a last year, I think it was, uh, the, uh, finally an English translation of this Morricone autobiography that had come out. Uh, that oh, I, I was just thinking of getting that. I was just looking at it today on Amazon. Have you got it? Do you, oh, what do you think? Yeah, oh, no, it's fantastic because it's... Um, this is. I think you're the second person I've sung the praises of uh, to this, like, just off handedly in an interview <laughs> but um no it's fantastic because the that particular book it 
deals you know with his history and like touches on his films but that's really only like a small part of the book and like the most of it is just him talking about the creative process and like how he like how he composes music and how he sees like music theory in general and it's it's fascinating uh i i have a feeling that there are some people who are just expecting him to like you know do the standard thing where he goes through chronologically and talks about his upbringing and then about the various films and he does that to an extent but that's really the least interesting part although discovering that he went to primary school with sergio leone and known each other yeah. for for forever like i was like oh that's that's a lovely detail that explains so then, a lot. Would a would a layman get you know somebody who's not a music professional or, or theorist would they be able to get uh, satisfaction from that book? Um, yeah, because like I am not a musical professional at all, um, but I cool. I really appreciate like just the the discussion of creativity and how like one concept can lead to another. I think uh, is sort of universal well, for anybody. He's who... an amazing protean genius, yes. Morricone. I, I know that. Joe, when you interview him, might have some stern things to say because a lot of he says that a lot of the time Morricone's film soundtracks aren't real soundtracks in the sense that he doesn't write them to the to the film; no. they're written <laughs> before the film or separate from the film, and then the film is put to them. But to me, that's I mean, that's not always a that's not always the case, and b kind of who cares? It's <laughs> such I, great scores. The fact that he was able to take music that he had originally composed for the thing and make it work for the hateful eight, I think is demonstrable well, of his talent. The thing is a weird movie because when you watch the film itself, it's mostly these spare synthesizer tracks, which are very Carpenter-esque. And did Carpenter even do them? And when you listen to the album, it's much more heavy-duty avant-garde orchestral. It's it's very strange because there is the the score to the thing, which is Ennio Morricone, and then there's other music that is on top of it, which is a little bit of uh, John Carpenter, but it's also mostly Carpenter's um, uh, friend and associate, Alan Howarth. Howarth, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 an interesting one. I think there's a complete version that has like all of like both the Howarth Carpenter music and the Mark. Oh, that's, that's obviously what I need. <laughs> like I really need another record, yeah, <laughs> but no. yes, I got to have that one. And because I can't, you know, I've been dying to tell you, it's a question that I've actually know the answer to, which is very rare. When somebody once asked me what my favorite piece of film music was, well, I've decided there's two. One is the love theme from Chinatown by Jerry Ooh. Goldsmith. And, the other is The Ecstasy of Gold by Morricone from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I think I could stand by those as my two favorite film tracks of all time. I I, I have occasionally just in a need to give myself like a like a boost, either it be like emotional or energetic, I have put on The Ecstasy of Gold and just played it loud enough to where you could hear it anywhere on it's either incredible. floor of our house. It's such a great... I mean, all those... Uh, the, the, those Leone scores are amazing, but that's, I think that if you have to choose one track, that's a really good one to start with. I, I think it is, and I think that's probably how we'll go out on this episode. Mr. Cartmel, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. This has been a real delight of a conversation. And What a I, pleasure. Let's do it again, Nick. That's absolutely. fantastic. Um, uh, thank you, and I will make sure that you and your publicist get a link when this go live. That'll be fab. Do you need any kind of visual stuff to go with it um if if i 
if I could just get like a nice headshot of you, that would be perfect. Headshot? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll yes. What's can it have a cat in it? <laughs> oh, that would be wonderful. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. Uh, I also I have a very good. Does it have to be a headshot? Oh I'm no, thinking. no. Like just no, a I, picture of you. Yeah, I've got. To, let me. It may not work with the format because I think you need kind of a rectangular format, right? Um, but look, I, I can make it work no matter what. <laughs> well, I just I've recently got a good picture, which is a full length shot of me in a kind of vintage car. So I'll yeah. send you through that. If, if that doesn't work, Nick, we will think again. But that's really great. And I just want to. I'm dying to ask. Do you know the Goldsmith uh, Chinatown theme? Oh yeah, I have. I have that record okay. sitting on a shelf right behind my office. <laughs> is also the room that has all of my records in it. So you are, you know your stuff, and you know if I had to keep going, you know. Taxi Driver by Bernard Herrmann. That's another magnificent. I finally school. found an original pressing of that in the basement of a record shop in um, northern Illinois on vacation this year. And they were having a all their vinyl was on sale for 50 percent off. Uh, and so I went up to the register and I did not know that. And then I immediately went back downstairs and bought twice as many records. <laughs> Well, that's the kind of story I like to hear, I'm going to say. Uh, let me see. Yep, I'm just giving this uh, for Nick. There you go. I'll send this to uh, The name of the photographer is actually on the file. And if you could, I don't know if there's possible credit here oh, yeah, somewhere. That would be really fantastic. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you, sir. This has been wonderful. What a pleasure. And I admit, if you, you know, if you ever want me to come back, because there's so much to talk about in this field. Fabulous. I, I I think towards the end of every summer we do a series that is just called uh, your favorite soundtrack. Um, where oh well, wow, that, where I'm I'm up for that, buddy. Where we just have people talk about like their favorite soundtrack and like how they came to it. So I will keep you in mind and I will reach out when that that comes around. That's fabulous, and I'll hook you up with Joe if that's okay. Yes, please. Thank you. What a pleasure. And isn't the internet great for stuff yes. like this? This has been wonderful. This is, this is, thank you. Yep. Please be in touch, Nick. I pleasure will. talking to you. All pleasure. the best. Have a good, have a good rest of your day. I will. Take care. Bye. Bye. Heart and soul, I fell in love with you. Heart and soul, the way a fool would do. You held me tight And stole a kiss in the night Hard and so I beg to be adored Lost control And tumbled overboard Gladly That magic night Thanks to Andrew Cartmill for talking with me. You can find the author on Twitter at Andrew Cartmill, on Instagram at Vinyl Detective London, and on the web at thenusianfrogbroth.blogspot.com. You can find all you can find out all about the Vinyl Detective series at TitanBooks.com. 
We'll have Mr. Cartmel back on later this year for our Your Favorite Soundtrack Summer Break series. And as you heard, Joe Kramer will be on the show. That's happening in early April. You can find links to purchase all of the music and books you heard about on the show in the show notes for this episode, which are at fromaninspiredby.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at FromInspiredPod and can be found on Instagram at FromAndInspiredBy. You can subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Click those follow and subscribe buttons. Please hit up the website and click on the Aid and Assistance button to help pay for web hosting and long distance fees. And remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. We'll be back in two weeks talking the 30th anniversary of the romantic comedy Pretty Woman with musician Lauren Wood. Until then, thanks for listening.